Hey y'all, welcome back to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast dedicated to talking shop, shit, and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. I'm so thrilled today because today I bring to you the Swiss Army knife of geological evaluations. His motto is, I will figure it out and boy does he deliver. Not only is he an expert in geological analysis, but he is also on the forefront of automation, AI, the application of machine learning, and big data analytics. There really is no subsurface evaluation he's unable to optimize. So without further ado, Mr. Matt Bauer, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Well, hey, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. And I definitely understand that this is not really your thing, but <laughs> <laughs> but you've helped me so much in my professional development that I thought it would be absolutely insane not to fully peer pressure you into coming on, spreading your acumen and industry know-how with everyone out there. Absolutely. I think it can help a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you know, by peer pressure, I mean bribing you with whiskey. So, (laughs) (laughs) Rye. So, oh, rye. That's what it is. Sorry. So, as you know, our primary focus for today is going to be on the hot topics of big data and the application of machine learning. But before we jump into that, we need to let everyone know who you are and honestly why you matter. So, today... I I know that your current roles are dad, husband, director of geology and analytics. You're also a small business owner where you design and implement customized solutions for subsurface evaluation. I know you're heavily involved with AAPG here in Colorado. You're also involved at the college with all the students, and you lend your time to Colorado Geological Survey. Yep. What time I can give them a try. Oh, my God. No wonder you needed whiskey before we started this. (laughs) So to kick everything off, can you please start with how, what, and why made you want to become a geologist? And please be specific. We like detail here. Crinoid stems in pencil boxes in about second grade. Yeah, I have no idea what you just said. Repeat (laughs) that and start over. uh, I've been pretty fascinated with rocks since uh, a very early age. And I can definitely remember going through elementary school and uh, grew up in Missouri it's a lot of invertebrate uh, carbonate fossils there, and going through and picking up uh, crinoid stems. So this is an echinoderm. So you were the, a nerd uh, from second grade on. Uh, probably from like preschool. Oh, awesome! That's okay. Awesome! Yeah. I love it. No, it was a lot of fun. I originally thought I was going to do genetics, and I had a mentor of mine set me down and ask me if I thought uh, that I'd be able to sit inside that long inside a lab, and instantly. What age was that? Uh, I was probably a sophomore in high school. Okay, so yeah. so almost college. Yeah, and I'd taken a dual credit uh, environmental science course, and because the course was only one semester, but for a high school schedule, it was for a year, we basically had a geology 101 on the, the second semester of that, um, even though we didn't get college credit for it, and it was absolutely a blast. I really enjoyed it, and it was easy to me. <laughs> easy so, to you. Yeah. <laughs> so... So yeah. then, what? how did you decide on which college? You already knew you wanted to be a geologist. Yep. Let's jump forward. Uh, I had applied at a couple different schools, um, was looking at Rolla and uh, University of Missouri and Kansas City. They actually offered me quite a bit more on scholarships. So I went there, um, got out of there, worked for approximately 10 years doing uh, ministry and upstream services. We worked in looking at asset transfers and trying to figure out how much liability was associated with those properties and those assets. So you consulted. There was a legal aspect to that as well, wasn't there? Yeah, so we did um, some expert witness support as well as uh, quantification of what you could expect as your P10, P50, P90 as the environmental liability with an asset before you sold it. And then you would either take uh, that value, take it off the sell price, negotiate with your, your buyer, put it into an escrow fund or worst case scenario, which we generally didn't want you to do is retain the environmental liability. Cause if it was a currently and continuing to be operated asset, that's probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you did that for about 10 years. Yep. And I then was kind you of went crazy and decided yeah. to come to golden Colorado. <clears throat> no, I was been living out here for quite a while. I moved out here oh. in 2000 and let's see here, seven or eight. 
something like that. Oh my God, I hadn't just graduated from college 1.0 yet. Yeah, but I was uh, getting a lot of pressure to go do more uh, project management kind of stuff, and I wanted to stay technical. And uh, so, what so kind of, what kind of pressure do you mean? Like, is it coming from your manager? Is it coming? It was from coming from the company sources? that I was working from. Okay, so yeah. you really wanted to stay technical. Yeah. And was that the push that made you decide to go back for? Yeah, for the most part, it was time to make a change. I think too. Okay. So. So you decided to attend Mines. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> got into Mines and uh, was very lucky to be able to get funded, so I could actually spend or spend my time working on my research. So you came for your master's. Yep, came so for my master's out here. Is it an MS or? It's an MS. It's yep. an MS. Okay, so what was your thesis on? So I was actually taking, uh, well, do you want the, the law or the short or the ugly version of the story? I want story? the ugly. Okay. Give it to us. We like detail here <laughs> at the Crude Audacity. So there is a, a major that they actually came up with the idea. They were in the Williston Basin and wanted to know why some of the pronghorn wells were performing vastly different than some of the neighboring acreage. And I started taking a look at it. We got uh, a semester in on the project, did all the background reading, uh, started pulling data in. And this is before you declared everything? No, we already declared it. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And then that company dropped out of our research control team. What? Yeah. Yeah, it was a little crazy. <laughs> so I was like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shit. Um, am How I gonna, am I going to eat? Am I going to spend, an, like stay an extra semester mm -hmm. or am I going to figure out how to make this work? Mm -hmm. And I decided to go to figure out how to make it work. Well, that is your motto. Yeah. <laughs> uh, went ahead and uh, learned how to program, uh, built some scrapers to go ahead and... So describe to us what scrapers are. So a, a scraper is a piece of software that automates... Um, the gathering of data from an online source. So basically you went to state websites with yep. public data and you pulled it. Yeah, where they don't give you an option to pull all of it at once, but I wrote scripts that could go in and pull everything I needed. Yeah, um, over, and, and, a, over a series of yeah, time. And there's different levels of scrapers from just doing a request and the computer recognizes it and just sends it back to mm -hmm. using um, Python libraries like Selenium mm -hmm. that actually mimic actions in a browser like a human would so hmm. yeah that's a little terrifying but yes please continue yeah. so <laughs> pulled a whole bunch of stuff down uh, from North Dakota um, I was looking at the pronghorn so went ahead and looked in and the main kind of kickoff point on all this is I wrote up a proof of concept in Excel and Visual Basic <laughs> before I had learned Python Oh man, it was it worked. Uh, but basically, all it did is used um, uh, a nearest neighbor search and a three D point cloud for basically your your top surface and your lower surface of whatever zone you were looking at. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for unconventional wells that are landing in that zone, rather than going and having geologists go one well by one well by one well, looking through the logs and looking at the tops and the log signatures and saying, okay, this is where it's actually producing from mm -hmm. or landing in, because that's a whole other conversation. I wrote up a script that uses point clouds from your map surfaces and looks for wells that have sections of the lateral that are actually in that zone. And he uses uh, a Haversine minimum and then just says, okay, is it between those two points? Mm -hmm. And uh, we put How in some QNPC. How long did that all take you? I wrote all of that stuff up. Mm, I had a proof of concept working in Excel and Visual Basic in May. Did my internship that summer, and then by about halfway through the semester, I had that script working. Um, Who not, was your internship with? Uh, so that year was with Colorado Geological Survey. Okay, so that's so, how you got started with them. Yeah, and yeah. And they haven't let you go. Well, no. <laughs> they, they've been kind enough to tolerate me. I but, know. <laughs> but on that's the other how, side of it, I go in there and I, I can help That's how his wife them. describes them as well, kind enough to tolerate him. <laughs> By the way, shout out to all the oil patch spouses out there, because if you were not willing to put up with our level of crazy, we could not do what Matt has done. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, Jess man. is drinking her wine. <laughs> so, so keep, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt we? you. Keep going, going. Oh, no, 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 we're good. Um, oh, yeah, CGS. So they're, they're kind enough to tolerate me, because I'm not in there all the time, so... Um, but I'm able to pull a lot of data sets that uh, 
like IHS doesn't want them to publish mm-hmm. anything on their own stuff. You know, even derivative products, they get a little p- pissy. But if it's coming from public data sources, then they're, they're good to go. That's cool. So, so then you started wrapping all this up? Or? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so wrapped all that stuff up. Um, and actually, the other thing that kind of really played into uh, my thesis is I actually wrote up a script that looks at spatial residuals. So if we look at multiple variables that uh, and not from the engineering side. The only thing I normalized from the engineering side was lateral length because yeah, I didn't have all that data. <laughs> hey man, that's a whole nother thesis. That's a whole nother thesis. But went and looked at um, all these different variables that I could actually take a look at and then compared them back to uh, production metrics mm-hmm. and did an MVA. So I put up a scatter matrix, look for anything that had um, a medium correlation or better. And then uh, if we look at that, it was a linear trend. We can improve these scripts better now, but at that point in time, it, it's what I did. And then looked at the residuals that were left in that and mapped those residuals out. Um, with that and a little bit of domain expertise in geology, you can start to tease out, like, what do we think is actually influencing these things? So it is both quantitative and... But, but that's what it uh, it is. And it went through and it actually... it quantitatively showed what a lot of the other previous authors had shown that influences on the pronghorn as well as um, a couple other items like uh, GOR increasing in areas where you expect to see a higher uh, fracture network. Mm-hmm. So you're, uh, so in, in a three-phase flow system, wherever you have your secondary permeability network, mm-hmm. so that's your fractures, mm-hmm. um, being your DF, enhanced. Your DFN specifically. Okay. Yeah. Well, glad you know that. I don't. <laughs> but uh, what you can actually see in those spatial residuals is that on the nose of this anticline that's up there, you actually see your GRO ratios jump way up. Um, and that's not something that's necessarily published out there on that. Okay. So, but it was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yep. So then you graduated. Graduated. Oh, yeah. So, so, so you got to fill us in on how in, you landed this mansion on a hill. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so I had a baby. I started three jobs, um, all within a matter of 60 days. What are these three jobs? So I was working um, through my own company, uh, doing some consulting for a mineral rights investment firm down in Dallas. I started working for Anschutz Exploration, mm-hmm. and I started working um, as a research faculty member for Colorado Geological Survey. So, just to interject real fast, the way Matt and I know each other is because of Anschutz Exploration, and I have a little story to tell you. Mm. I heard the other day that they were questioning why they call it the Bat Cave, because there is now a plaque <laughs> on the outside of the door. An actual plaque, yeah, not something actual, printed? like a, an actual, like, this is the Bat Cave. And they're all questioning that. Well, Anschutz, I'm about to tell you where the Bat Cave come from. <laughs> do, you came want, from. do you want me to pick that one up? No. <laughs> this is my anecdote. Okay. So, when I was getting started in Denver... I had the opportunity to work for Anschutz as a reservoir contractor, and Matt happened to be there just slightly after me, uh, working as a contractor on the subsurface team as well. Because we were both contractors, they put us in the file cabinet room. So, do you remember it's this? It's a big file. I mean, it's room. it's a it's, it's a big room. There there were plenty of desks in there, but he and I were the ones to start in there, and he always had headphones on. He really didn't look up from his computer, so I was quite content not engaging with him. And then one afternoon, shout out to Mary Sue, she and I were in there working, and Matt was not there, but we heard his computer start making noises that were, quite frankly, the equivalent of a Chernobyl meltdown. We smelled smoke. We, I swear to you, we saw sparks. You didn't see sparks. I saw sparks. <laughs> and the next day he comes in, and I'm pretty sure the first words I ever said to you were, what the hell, man? It's <laughs> like, are you building a bomb in this room? No. And he just happened crunching to be, data. yeah, he was just crunching the heck out of some data. But 
having been in the file cabinet room with him and knowing what he was doing, what I was doing, what Mary Sue was doing, we labeled it the Bat Cave. But I love that they still call it the Bat Cave. I'm so proud of that. Like, I I don't know why that I'm so proud of that legacy, but you and I came up with that legacy, and that's awesome. It's a it's a hat tip to the mines geology department. No, so. I'm also the petroleum department. Don't don't interfere with my don't step on my. You like, go into the geology department, and ask where the Bat Cave is. Uh, okay. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, excellent. So, um, were there any? I mean, that's that's a very long story, and it's <clears> a great story. But were there any just? absolutely defining moments was something said to you by a mentor did something happen with a manager anything that really shaped how you have progressed through your career um as far as getting into like scraping tons of data building dashboards um building machine learning models and that kind of stuff it really kind of boils back to that major dropping out of our research consortium because it was like, you know, one of those shit or get off the pot moments where you're like, yeah. oh, am I going to switch my thesis topic or am I just going to figure out how to make this work? Um, and that's how your motto was formed. Uh, yeah, but I've kind of had that mindset for a long time. That's oh, not a bad mindset to have. Yeah. So let's jump into the meat of it. All okay. right. So a big buzzword or buzz phrase rather that's being tossed around industry right now is big data. Uh-huh. And having come from a technical team and worked with several operators, something I've learned is that everyone is interested in big data. Very few actually know what big data is. Mm -hmm. And since this is your day to day, can you please elaborate on what big data is and not only why it's important to industry and say the super majors who can afford just about every form of science and do, but the small private independents mm-hmm. who you know who are sitting there trying to keep up get ahead and find opportunity amongst the chaos yep absolutely so it depends on who you really ask but if it all kind of boils back to um, recognition of patterns so humans are really good at recognizing patterns in small data sets actually better than computers are hmm. um, and they're more versatile so you can uh, like it that. can do a lot more different tasks without a huge amount of training uh, compared to it, but where machine learning and big data really shines is when you have giant, giant data sets that it is incomprehensible for you to actually go in so and work it up about yourself. All those old files that haven't been digitized yet. You're talking. <clears throat> oh, you're about... talking about dark data. That's a whole nother topic. Oh, go into it, man. <laughs> so I didn't even know that was a phrase. So yeah, it's kind of dark data is the data that is. So it's all the old rasters that we have out there that aren't scanned in, or they're maybe scanned in, but they're in uh, PDFs that aren't usable. Um, nothing's been digitized in an LAS file. Um, it's all of these, you know, the mudloggers notes that go through and, hey, you know, there was a 50-barrel kick to the pits back in the day when they went through this zone. Oh, my God, I'm cringing. Yeah, I know. And, you know, but it's not in there because it's in human handwriting that hasn't been OCR'd. So mass text searches through this stuff doesn't catch it. That's dark data. So okay. it, it's data that hasn't quite been brought up. Okay. Um, and that's that's kind of like the weird going in, in a lot of, at least in my area, I'm re-exploring stuff that was explored in the 50s to the 70s. Um, I'm serious. And when you go through and you want to know a lot of this stuff, we've already been in these fields, mm-hmm. you know, and we want to see is there bypass bays that's worth our time to go and take a look at. Mm-hmm. So, especially out here in the Rockies. So then that leads into what exactly is machine learning and oh. why, sh- why should industry so honestly it goes back care? To, it goes back to pattern recognition. So when you have these huge data sets and once you actually get them cleaned up enough. Now uh, talk about the coding also and talk about computer science because the, you build into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but going back to the, the pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Computers and machine learning algorithms are much better at making sense of huge data sets that a human by itself cannot actually process. Um, and there's a lot of efficiencies that come out of that. Um, the, the problem with it is, and a lot of people don't talk about this, is that it requires huge data sets. Um, there's been projects that I've worked on that I would like to have seen work a lot better, but when you train a, a, a machine learning model on a very shallow pool, 
it doesn't work. You can actually end up overtraining the data. So okay. the machine learning model memorizes it rather than actually learns from it. So Matt, this is all well and good, but if a bear shits in the woods and the tree doesn't make a sound, it doesn't matter. So why is the combination of machine learning and big data and analytics making an impact on our industry and honestly the forefront of the industry? It's the, it's the frontier right now. Well, I mean, you kind of go back to your analogy. Okay, let's say <laughs> we like actually... That? I worked yeah. hard on that one. Let's say that... Um, a logging company made a record of the bear shitting in the woods and uh, that gets downgraded into a, a let's say a raster or put into some LAS file well, better yet and it gets popped out there with a bunch of other records of wood recordings mm -hmm. and some of them have bears shitting mm -hmm. and not all of them do okay. and then you actually need to go through in order to find those um, you can actually either write scripts yourself or train models to recognize uh, those anomalies or maybe there's something a little bit easier to see than that so i know and then it can iterate through all your files mm -hmm. and tag the ones you want so i actually know that machine learning is assisting currently um for some of the from some of the bigger projects that are out there mm -hmm. but it's assisting currently with exploration rock property prediction facies oh, yeah. analysis which is actually some form of rock property um, prediction is there anything else that you're aware of that is impacting or we're, we're applying efficiencies to because of machine learning. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff. Um, so Zane Job over at Mines, uh, Mines. Yeah, our favorite school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, he's actually doing some interesting stuff with trying to predict uh, depositional models off of uh, trained data sets that he's compiled and pulled from papers and everything else to actually look at okay, are you actually saying to a geologist and looking at a log signature, does that look like that? Or does it actually correlate with how um, known depositional environments of that type actually look? Um, there's some other kind of cool stuff. There's been some work with um, generative advisory networks. So it, it actually goes in and then produces all of these um, stream depositional environments hmm. and then goes through an iterative process with the data that you have and says, what is the most likely to actually be uh, existing in the subsurface, which is kind of cool. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's some cool there's stuff. There's a lot of opportunity here. It sounds oh, like. yeah. Well, but that's the thing is, is that, you know, machine learning, it, it's really good at doing whatever the specific thing that the model that you trained it to do is. Okay. Um, humans are good at dealing with um, different tasks that come up. Mm -hmm. So... Well, you know, with the introduction of new technology or ways to streamline existing technology, mm. I have always noticed, and you're probably not going to agree with me on this, but I have noticed that every time there's a forefront or a frontier, we start seeing very interesting new positions start popping up, and they always start popping up at the super majors to begin with. One of the ones that I don't know that I necessarily agree with, so that's why I'm going to ask you, is the title of data scientist. Because to me, engineers, geologists, petrophysicists, we are scientists by trade. We mm -hmm. have to deal with large data sets daily, analyze them, and figure out the best way to comprehend them and put them into a usable and actionable item. Yep. Yet we're seeing this position pop up, or we're seeing engineers start calling themselves data scientists instead of engineers, which I don't know that I necessarily agree with. but. Do you feel that this is becoming a necessary role here in industry? Yep. You know, I actually think it is because... Really? Yeah. All right. It, Changed so my mind. A data scientist. So if you think about it, you have to know some about stats. So you have to be a statistician. You have to be able to program. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully you have some domain expertise. Um, and in that program, you have to have machine learning background and training and... Um, optimization and that kind of stuff so the, there's the, actually a resume associated with this title yeah see the thing is is there's just so much to to learn and understand just like you have you know a reservoir engineer a production engineer and you have your petrophysicists on your team mm -hmm. in order to effectively train these models and pull all this data in and get it cleaned up and get everything ready to go you almost need another person to do that and like when you dedicated resources, yeah, you when you integrate those folks in your teams, mm -hmm. you can see huge gains on it because a lot of this stuff, if you think about it as a geologist, at least I can speak to this, 
I would say 70, maybe 80% of my time, a lot of it, um, is spent getting data into a usable format. Hmm. Now imagine if you could take that and you automate 90% of that, mm -hmm. and then you get to spend your time doing what you actually enjoy doing, which is interpreting the data, right? Well, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> the reason you got me involved in my Python coding and starting my fundamentals mm -hmm. was because I am you know, trained in advanced characterization. Mm -hmm. And I was spending so much time pulling these databases together it wasn't necessarily contributing to my end goal, which was the analysis of the data. Yep. So that's something, I mean, y'all, I called him out of the blue and said I need to learn this, and he definitely set me up. But that was something you immediately started teaching me was it's not necessarily the coding to produce the result. It was the coding to put the data in a usable form, Yep. which is called conditioning. Yep, yep. absolutely. Okay, so you are pro-data scientists. Yeah. Okay, good for that. If you have the budget to spend on it, I think it's a it's a worthy cause. But, or you can send it to me. I'm good with that. But on too. the other side, there has been multiple instances where big contracts have been given to data analysis companies that don't have domain expertise. Yeah. And have huge huge flops, like recognizing counties out of uh, API numbers. And that is a predictor on production. Well, no shit. <laughs> if it's in a good field, it works. Kind of. Well, you know, I am a reservoir engineer. <clears throat> yeah. I have made sure that my master's, my undergrad, even my business undergrad, I put all the steps forward to making sure that I would be in a position of a technical team, advanced characterization. But I will say that there is an old school mentality that I fight daily where this is you know, they're promoting segregated teams. Don't talk to your geologist. Don't talk to your IT. Or you're seeing it come across and this isn't the way we've done it. Or we've always done it this way and it's worked. DCA analysis will do that, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a technophobia uh, presence in this industry, especially when we have this opportunity for more accurate, precise analytics? I, I think both uh, from the geologist from the geologist perspective, I think both sides of the way it's been done have value. Um, but the the value added of being able to automate all those um, workflows and, and being able to work through and, and get that stuff down to where you actually want to be using it um, and spending the time with you know actually the interpretation rather than the processing, I, I think the people need to take a step back and what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of something that you don't understand? Are you afraid of um, being replaced? Because you're not. Well, let me actually back up into that because your thesis alone <clears throat> was a quick look predictive model that yep. allowed people to evaluate acreage, evaluate quicker. I am a reservoir engineer. Yep. Evaluating acreage is kind of one of my fundamental roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So I just have to ask you, what the hell, man? Well, but what do you prefer? <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you trying to get rid of me? What do you prefer to spend your time doing? Actually, data analytics. Well, but do you, in part of data analytics is I like all of the for trends and outproving the last guy. How's that? That's right. Okay. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You'd what, rather spend your time. <laughs> you'd rather spend your time working on. Um, the sexy side of it, the actual interpretation and looking for those and, and trying to understand why am I seeing this trend? Mm -hmm. I do like the sexy side of data. Rather than, you know, spending it, six months going through and figuring out which wells are producing out of which zones, going through and, and trying to figure out, okay, what structural features are important for the producing system, <laughs> um, going through and maybe, because I also looked at a lot of geophysics um, regional geophysics data sets, what actually matters out of that? Because some of it does, some of it doesn't. I will say one of the benefits of my last role was that my boss made sure that when we got a new data set in, mm -hmm. I not only had to deliver to him what was usable, functional, and what we were getting from it, but he also made me go a step beyond and say, here's the data we can't use and why, and really hit home about understanding why we couldn't use certain data so that I could explain it to the next group. Yeah, but how much of that domain knowledge is actually because of a, a real item or how much of it is because that's what's always been done? That's a good question. I'm not sure I know the proper answer to it. From your side of the matrix, hmm. 
Is there anything else happening in industry, happening on the geological side, the subsurface side, that is exciting you, that is making you think, oh, that's cool shit, we should pay attention to it? Uh, yeah, there's uh, some pretty neat stuff going over at mine. So the other folks at the uh, Chevron Center for Research and Excellence, we're going to fix that later. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, they're, they're doing some really neat stuff with uh, depositional environment uh, prediction. Mm-hmm. and building machine learning models from known data sets where we actually know what the depositional environment is and saying from just the log signature on uh, what we think it is. And that has some Ooh. some big implications on the, the size and scale of uh, fields. Oh, that's so, really exciting Yeah, stuff. it's pretty cool. That's so cool. Sh- All right, so you're pretty savvy. I mean, for the most part. Have you been paying attention to some of the headlines that we're seeing out there lately? Like, have you seen this recent one booming the potential death of shale just because of the assets bought in Alaska? Uh, I don't necessarily think that's quite the case. Uh, You know, near borehole permeability will always matter. It doesn't matter if you have some engineer that thinks that they can smack the rock with a bigger hammer (laughs) and turn shit rock into great rock. Um, if you pay attention to, you know, what your brittleness is and the, and what goes back to the depositional environment as well, because that's something that isn't necessarily just intuitively in there. You think uh, it would be? Uh, well, but then you got to look at organic matter preservation and that really matters. The rock right next to the borehole matters. Mm-hmm. You know, it really does. If you have enough permeability coming off of that. So divining an SRV, basically a stimulated fracture region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does. It really matters. Because if you look at all this bad acreage that got kind of wrapped up in Mm -hmm. a lot of this, we we got rid of a lot of it with the last downturn. Mm -hmm. And we're getting rid of basically the rest of it. Um, But on the other side of that, too, there's still some there's still some sweet stuff that's out there that's being overlooked. So I completely agree with that. I love finding that sweet stuff. Now, you and I live in Colorado. Mm -hmm. We are dealing with some of the most volatile legislative actions right now. From 112, we're dealing with 181 right now. And, you know, it sort of grinds my gears a little bit because fracking alone can be arguably one of the most innovative, impressive, uh, ingenuitive uh, technologies of not necessarily even the century, but everyone who is alive It's just such a, uh, we've made such leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. Not only to mention that, that the fossil fuel industry, because of us, we are, we have better transportation. We have longer life expectancies. We're able to provide more food, healthcare, everything. So coming back to machine learning and the opportunities and efficiencies that are there, can you speak on that a little bit, especially since we're about to enter a, you know, voting year 2020 here comes another presidency, governorships, you know, we see a lot of people running for local senate offices, and inevitably it all comes back to the fossil fuel industry. Someone always has a nasty comment, and we don't promote our good works um, as well as they promote our bad works. But with the machine learning, because of the efficiencies that we potentially have, those good works have the capacity to get that much better. Well, I think that a lot of the technologies that you just mentioned, you know, horizontal drilling, um, hydraulic stimulation, also ML coming into that as well, mm-hmm. is we're getting more out of the rock that's there. And instead of going into these... Less you know, invasively. This is true. And let these fields, you know, that we developed during World War II where we're getting 40 or 10 acres spacing. Mm-hmm. And if you look at really where do the impacts come from, when you really get down to it, it's surface impacts. And if you can decrease, you know, two sections or now we can get three or maybe even four sections concentrated down to one pad, Mm -hmm. we decrease the human aspect of it because humans are valuable. Mm -hmm. Accidents do happen. Some humans. Well. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No one tweeting. But we can reduce the risk on that. And then the other side of it too is we've already seen, you know, mercury decrease in this country. That's true. From a a decreased use of coal Mm -hmm. um, by cheap natural gas. We have some of the cleanest air. We have some of the most uh, prolific environmental standards. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is amazing. Well, I, I think Colorado has been proactive. And it, yeah. you know, Hickenlooper, I think, did a, a big part of that. He was also a petroleum geologist. Um, but he I said, did not know that. Yeah, he was. Ah. Yeah, before he made brew, he, he uh, <laughs> looked for a while. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, it's a balance, too. And you have to look at um, 
and the quote unquote social license to operate, but you know, be a good neighbor. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Right. You know, I think we do a really good job. We all benefit on that. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of it, I think that people that are doing good things and then are receiving good things should maybe speak up a little bit more. Absolutely. Here's the brass tacks. Does it really pay to just be a geologist anymore? Because if you ask me, does it pay to just be a petroleum engineer anymore? I'm going to tell you no. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? We've got new grads. We've got a volatile industry. We've got prices that are at best $55 on a good day, 53 you know. We've There's a lot of money to be made yeah. at those prices, though. There is. If you have the right technologies in place. Yeah. You've got people avoiding industry going into grad school just to see if things get better what is some of the advice you have for them and honestly does it pay well can you afford your student loans <laughs> well i mean that's a very serious thing yeah um if you can't get funding for grad school i don't know that i would go into you know some giant zircon dating project <laughs> not not to rip on that because there's a lot of good things that come out of it but unless you can actually apply that in an industry I wouldn't take out a hundred grand to go do that just because you think it's cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to look at the economic feasibility of what the research you're doing is. Is your side of the matrix seeing uh, the layoffs that my side is? So, um, just to be clear on this, I actually work uh, for a firm that does mineral right investment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the political unrest that we are seeing here in Colorado, we view as an opportunity. See, I love that. Yeah. I um, love that. Because here the thing is, is there's a lot of folks that have been holding on to these assets for and a long time. For a long time, and they and don't know what they have. Well, they don't know. It's not necessarily some of them do. Okay. Um, but you know, they see a little bit of risk in there, and they're getting a little older, and they want to diversify a bit, and they're letting some stuff go. Hmm. So, but on the you know, kind of circling back around to does a geologist be just a geologist anymore? And I think that there is a place for some of those if you get into a super major right out of the bat. Mm -hmm. But if you're working for a small and mid-sized company, especially in unconventionals, you need to be, you know, you have to understand why your engineer is asking for certain things. Mm -hmm. You have to understand, you know, what's going on in your petrophysicist's mind where you're actually, you know, looking at your pay flags and that kind of stuff. So wearing of many hats is really important. But I do have to say, speaking up and saying, hey, I don't quite understand this. It's not a bad and, thing. No, it's a, it's a good thing. And people need to be, not be afraid of that. Exactly. Because that's how you learn, too. The argument is, I couldn't agree with you more, the argument is is that I'm afraid of becoming a jack-of-all-trades and master of none. Hmm. Screw that mentality up the wazoo. The reality is is that you're becoming a Swiss Army knife, and you get to operate in a realm that most do not. Yeah. So be, don't be afraid to stretch. Look for opportunity look for something like coding, something that sets you apart because it is a volatile industry. And I think that just wearing one hat is no longer an, a feasible, uh, I guess, strategy anymore right. in industry. And I, I would recommend that for any young scientist going through school. Mm -hmm. it, you know, when you add, um, I specifically code in Python for the most part. Um, Jupiter notebooks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, Sexy is that... Data. <laughs> You're not just adding another tool. You're, tick, you're picking up another tool bag, and then you pip install another tool bag on top of that. Mm -hmm. You can do so much stuff that you never thought was actually possible before. I so, love that. Yeah. All right, so I've worked with you. I, I tend to know what your schedule is, but talk to me about what your daily schedule looks like. From what time do you wake up? How do you manage the chaos? How do you organize? How do you prioritize? What time do you go to bed? Do you have any specific routine that sets you apart? Okay. So I want to speak uh, before I picked up this last job. Uh, I was getting up at 4.30. He was actually, y'all. Yep. And I was driving downtown and parking, uh, working at Anschutz. Mm -hmm. I'd be there until 4 o'clock. I left Monday through Thursday there. So what time did you arrive at downtown then at the office? Um... I tried to always, the very latest, to be there at 6. I'd like to be there earlier than that. Mm -hmm. My goal was to have 40-plus in by, you know, Thursday afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, nights and weekends, I was playing dad. I was writing code for uh, my own personal LLC. And then on Fridays, I always kind of considered it my sandbox days. 
I was going into CGS and because um, I got to wear a bunch of different hats over there. I was working on my own research, mm-hmm. um, worked on some landslide uh, stuff on, on fires. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, wrote up some scripts that go out and actually grab land fire uh, geometries and that kind of stuff. I was looking at bottom hole temperatures. But you arrived at the office around 6.30, so... Oh, I'd say 6. 6? Okay. Yeah, so on a daily. We have emails, we have chaos, people start arriving around 8 o'clock, oh. 9 o'clock. Talk to me about what your schedule looked like so that you so could handle it all. I actually had this in my signature, and, and Catherine and I will send you a link to this. Um, there's actually a, a paper that I ran across during grad school, and it's talking about uh, efficiency losses due to email. And uh, <laughs> to everybody else out there listening, the first thing you should do at the end of this is if you haven't already shut off your Microsoft Outlook notification for a new email, you should go do that. Um, the, the thing you is, Google it. <laughs> yeah, well, I put a link in there, and I checked my emails at 7 a.m., so basically most of the people on those folks in that office were there by then mm-hmm. and I checked it at noon and I had a thing in there if it if it's a fire an emergency call me yes um, he actually em- does yes yeah and then I'm happy to help but I don't want to spend 15 minutes getting back in the groove and remembering what each of my variables are and the code that I'm writing and trying to recall all this stuff and being deep in thought and being interrupted all the time so you essentially time batched your administrative duties as well as your priority oh, yeah. duties. hundred percent. Okay. So yeah. what did you spend 30 minutes looking at emails and then you jumped into your priorities for the day? I started out I had my best thoughts in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as I got in, I always leave code or um, notes in my code. Like what was I struggling with the day before and what I, I slept about it. And, you know, I had some time to think and maybe I read some papers in the middle of the night about 3 AM <laughs> and, uh, and I'll tackle those. Mm-hmm. Um, then I'll go through and rewrite my functions that I wrote the other day just to clean them up because sometimes you miss something too. Yeah. And you know, when you're processing that much, you don't want to make major mistakes. Um, then at seven, I would go through all my emails mm-hmm. and address everything that was there. And then I'd go back in my work. And then usually in my afternoons, um, from like one to about four o'clock, mm-hmm. I'd work on, uh, scraping projects. I would work on, um, if I needed some more definition in an area, I'd pick tops in that time period. Mm-hmm. So like work that needs to be done, but it isn't as thought intensive. Okay. But I schedule that as after lunch because I like food yeah. and it doesn't make me as attentive as, you know. Is there anything that you have noticed? Because you are very successful in your field. Is there anything you have noticed about your daily routine that really sets you apart from your coworkers, call them your competitors, the people that challenge you. So I had a, a good friend of mine, Patrick Wood, uh, actually shout out to him too. I told him when he was going through grad school and trying to wrap his stuff up, I said seven to seven, man, if you really want to crush some heads, it's not necessarily cause you can be smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're smart and you work hard because you know, in science, a lot of times you work down things that end up not being anything. Especially if you're trying to cut an edge. Yeah. You know, you, you maybe go down a data set of spacing orders and it takes you a month to get them to where they're processing and everything else is working great. And then you find out, oh, there's not shit there. <laughs> you know, that happens. But a if you lot. Don't, if you don't put in the time in order to make that stuff happen, then, uh, you know, it's not going to show up. So your tip is seven to seven. Well, seven to seven, but don't forget to take the time off. So that's yeah, another you thing. Need, you need to relax your brain. Yeah. Um, so that was pre-dadhood. Dadhood. Generally. I, uh, Pre-Livy. When, when my wife is in town, she's a flight attendant. Uh, when she is in town, I go in early so I can spend more time in the evenings um, with her and my daughter. Mm-hmm. And then, um, depending on what's going on, uh, in the evenings, I'll generally pick up a paper, open up the laptop get a little more stuff done um, that you can actually get those hours in because if you're not grinding on it, it's not going to show up and don't be afraid to play either. Um, That comes in on the coding side of it. Oh, Um, to try new things is what you mean. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So many are are afraid to try. Well, 
before we wrap all this up, give me a podcast, a resource, a book, something oh. that you would recommend to everyone listening. Uh, for the geologist, geophysicist, geo, petroleum engineer, wannabe programmer, maybe you're already a programmer, uh, the Software Underground and the guys over at Agile, uh, Matt Hall specifically, those guys have really influenced me. They've done some really good stuff. They also have a podcast called Undersampled Radio. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I, I would recommend learning to program. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing is, is that not everybody it's is... easy. Not everybody is going to go out there and be a programmer in day one or month eight. I mean, it, it's just not going to happen for everybody. But having some understanding about some of the things that you can do with it, mm -hmm. and then on an integrated team... Having those domain expertise, maybe you know you're the geologist or you're the petroleum engineer, and you have that data sciences data scientist available, and saying, "Hey, can we go ahead and try these things?" Um, there, there's a lot of unseen value that is out there, but maybe that person that's the data scientist isn't going to see it, and you're the one that is using the data. Um, you're the ones that's interpreting it day in and day out. Think about your workflows and what's repetitive, and how we can actually go in and and automate that. Matt, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You have brought so much value to this podcast, and I cannot wait for everyone to take it, digest it, and make it actionable. Well, thanks, Catherine. So, guys, what did you think about Matt's take and insights into big data analytics and machine learning? If you have any thoughts or follow-up questions, shoot us an email or leave a comment. We will definitely be having Matt back on the show to answer your questions and to provide us with more industry insights in the future. Also, for those of you interested, Matt will be teaching a series of courses on Python for Geology here soon in Golden, Colorado. Once we have the schedule, I will be sure to get it out to you so you can sign up and get started. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We'd greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.
some folks.